This morning we begin a new series called Freedom in Christ that will run uh, for these weeks leading up uh, to when Lent begins. And uh, Lent officially begins on the romantic holiday of Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, um, which is a special way you can know your loved one by telling them they're a sinner. Um, So anyway... um, and reminding them of their mortality. So that will be how we celebrate Valentine's Day this year as a community. Um, When I, sometimes when I look back at what I was thinking, uh, I wonder what I was thinking. So 1 Corinthians uh, is the lectionary text. It's one of the texts uh, for these four weeks. And I thought, oh, sure, let's open up with the passage that uh, has the most times where it says fornication uh, in all of scripture. Uh, So here we are today to begin the second Sunday of the year. Um, Pray for me and for one another. Here's 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. I have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is helpful. I have the freedom to do anything, but I won't be controlled by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and yet God will do away with both. The body isn't for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God has raised the Lord and will raise us through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are parts of Christ? So then, should I take parts of Christ and make them a part of someone who is sleeping around? No way. Don't you know that anyone who is joined to someone who is sleeping around is one body with that person? The scripture says the two will become one flesh. The one who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Avoid sexual immorality. Every sin that a person can do is committed outside the body, except those who engage in sexual immorality commit sin against their own bodies. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You have been bought and paid for, so honor God with your body. Friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have the freedom to do anything. Some college students make this their complete motto. There's a sense of independence that many of us remember relishing when we finally got to that phase. All of us indeed had a point, whether it was in college or at another crossroads in life, where we had the autonomy, or so we thought, for our own lives. And this feels really good when you're making your own decisions for your own life. However, some students around that college age make this freedom out to be their entire life philosophy. I have the freedom to do anything, so I'll stay up until 6 a.m. and sleep the entire day. I have the freedom to do anything, so I'll eat pizza every single day for breakfast and polish it off with three donuts. I have the freedom to do anything, so I'll get drunk with my friends on a Tuesday. I have the freedom to do anything, so I'll dress as crazy as I want. I have the freedom to do anything, so I'll be as sexually active as possible. I have the freedom to do anything, so classes are optional. Now, the people of Corinth were not newly independent college students. But I have the freedom to do anything was indeed one of their core philosophical beliefs. Corinth was a popular commercial site and a crossroads in the ancient world. 
but it had been defeated by Rome in 146 BC, and it was established as a newly Roman city, no longer a Greek one, in 44 BC. Many of the people who populated Corinth now and had repopulated were former slaves. Paul founded the Christian community in Corinth somewhere around 50 AD and spent 18 months there. He likely wrote this letter three to four years later. So these people had only been followers of Jesus for a few years. Corinth, like most ancient cities, supported numerous sites of pagan worship. There was a large statue of the goddess Athena in the town center. And Paul was faced with bringing his converts into the symbolic world of Judaism. These people were Greek and Roman and not familiar at all with the realm of Judaism. Paul's fundamental conviction as he writes to the people of Corinth is this. The church lives within a new sphere of power and a new logic and way of looking at the world. How can he convert the community's imagination? There had been some correspondence to Paul that caused him to write this letter to the Corinthians. So in a sense, this is sort of like 2 Corinthians because the people had already written to him. One group that was called Chloe's people had written Paul to describe dissension that was occurring in the Christian community. And this disunity is the focus of the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. And it also seems that the Corinthian church themselves, maybe their leadership or their whole body, had also written Paul with direct questions they wanted him to answer. Remember, these people are three to four years old as Christians. There was no like book that they could go to or no internet to figure out how do we answer these questions as Christian people. So this letter is Paul's answer to their direct concerns. We don't have the original letters composed by the Corinthians, but we can get a glimpse into the everyday life of these early Christians. And we can also see how our problems are not all that different today. There were likely anywhere from 50 to 150 Christians in total in Corinth that Paul was writing to. And what we know about these people is that there was a wide spectrum of socioeconomic classes together in that church. There were rich people and there were former slaves. And this mixture of classes created problems. And the wealthy class valued the philosophies of the Stoics and the Cynics. Paul directly addresses these people in his letter as, quote-unquote, the wise or the wise ones. They believed that they were free to do as they choose. And after accepting Jesus, they viewed this freedom as given to them by Jesus' death on the cross. Essentially, they baptized their Stoic and Cynic philosophy and named it Christian. Paul spends a great deal of this letter arguing that freedom, as these philosophies taught, is different from the freedom that Jesus offers. And that's where we find ourselves today. Today's problem is this. It seems like some members of the Corinthian church were continuing their practice of going to prostitutes and claiming it as harmless. Now, we have to understand that prostitution was not stigmatized in their culture. It was normal for men of means to participate in this, and they wanted to keep doing so. Insert any joke you want to about men here. Paul begins his discussion about this with the Corinthians by essentially creating a pretend conversation. Now you have to understand, in the Greek text, there's not punctuation. And so we don't get this. But I want you to hear this. He quotes the Corinthians, possibly even directly from their letter. You say, I have the freedom to do anything. 
But I say, but not everything is helpful. You say, I have the freedom to do anything. But I say, but I won't be controlled by anything. In these first two points, Paul is appealing to simple logic. Like the college student who claims freedom by staying up all night, Paul is like his mother who says, but that's not really helpful. Your body needs sleep. You end up getting sick. And its luster wears off pretty quickly. Paul then continues by quoting what the Corinthians have seemingly used as their justification for their illicit activities. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, when I feel hungry, I eat. And its corollary for Paul's world was, when I have sexual urges, I go to the prostitute. Paul retorts, the body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now we are outside of simple logic. Paul wants the Corinthians to think differently about their bodies. For Paul, there are three reasons in this passage why the body matters, and he presents these to the Corinthians. The first one is this, the body matters because of the resurrection. The Corinthians will say, and God will do away with them both. God will do away with the stomach and the food. In the the pop popular philosophies around them, that belief was just that the soul is the only thing that lives on, and the body and everything material is just a shell, is just temporary. The body was unimportant in the Christian, in the Corinthian worldview. We Christians have inherited a lot of this Corinthian philosophy. But Paul argues back to them, but God raised the Lord and will raise us Through his power. In other words, this body that we have is going to be raised again. It has eternal permanence, and what we do with it matters. Paul is going to spend an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 arguing this point about the importance of the resurrection of the body. For this Christian community, life is shaped by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This seems like a simple statement but it's a lot harder to live out. And it requires that how we typically think about the world changes and is converted. Now, Paul may have helped these people at Corinth come to faith in Christ, but they still had a lot of growing to do. It wasn't as simple as say yes to Jesus and that's the end. No, they had to learn how to see the world through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. And so do we. Paul continues his argument about why the body matters, and his second point is this. The body matters because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul focuses here on the unity that exists between a Christian and Jesus. His point is clear. A disciple's body is a part or a member of Christ. When we begin to follow Jesus, we are members of Christ. This is why Paul in other places can write about the body of Christ and how we are connected to one another. For Paul, a Christian is connected to Christ in an analogous way to a sexual union. It is a bonding and intimate relationship. Thus, a member of Christ can in no way be joined to a prostitute or to anyone else outside of marriage. Paul makes his appeal Don't you know that your bodies are parts of Christ? So then should I take parts of Christ and make them a part of someone who is sleeping around? No way. Paul works from this understanding about our intimacy with God 
to describe the intimacy that occurs in sex. The way I understand what Paul is saying is this. There is only marital sex. In other words, sexual activity always binds two people together. There is not casual sex that merely satisfies an urge like the Corinthians think. The Christian understanding of sex is a much more serious one that takes our bodies seriously. And the reason why we take these bodies seriously, asked Paul, is this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? This is not just a metaphor for Paul. We are temples. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in each of us. So what we do with this body matters immensely and how we practice our sexuality matters because God is in us. There is nothing that we can do and nowhere that we can go where we are not connected to God. And Paul continues with his third argument. And it may be the hardest one. It may be the most convincing one, but it's also the hardest one for us to live out and to hear in today's day and age. And that's this. The body matters because it belongs to the Lord. Paul closes his section with these words. Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You have been bought and paid for, so honor God with your body. Paul closes with those words, and I think these are tough words for us because the American way today is to proclaim the autonomy of my own body. Obviously, Christians should be all about things like sexual consent. But we are mistaken as followers of Jesus if we think that we are only completely autonomous individuals. The goal of being human is not just to gain all autonomy. That is not a description of the good life. In fact, that can be the description of a selfish and insufferable person. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to join God's work of the kingdom and to participate in it. Our freedom in Christ binds us closer to Christ. Just like my freedom in marriage binds me ever closer to my wife, I am not constrained by my relationship with her, but I'm free to grow and express all of who I am in that intimate relationship. Jesus did not come to earth and die on a cross and rise again so that some people could gather once a week 2,000 years from now and pay lip service to him. Jesus came to inhabit our lives and world and to bring us into eternal union with God. And we just sang these words, I'm no longer my own, but yours. And the question is, did you mean it? I'm no longer my own, but yours is an expression against individual autonomy in some ways. I'm not my own, but yours, God. The Corinthians' logic was this, I am free to do anything. Paul's logic is honor God with your body. Corinthian logic and American logic focuses on the rights and freedoms of the individual above all other things. Paul's logic focuses on devotion and thanksgiving to God displayed through our bodies. I think the expression of freedom in America that most resembles the Corinthians would be this saying, you don't tell me what to do. This is the water we swim in in our culture today. Individualism and autonomy 
above all other things. And we try to blend that with the Christian life. And there lies our problem. We can't. For when we become followers of Jesus, we place ourselves under the authority of a king. And when we are part of Jesus' family in the church, we place ourselves under the authority of one another. This is what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. When you have sex with someone, it does not only affect you. It affects your relationship with God. And it affects your relationship with that other person. And it also affects your relationship with the entire community of Christ. So how can we experience transformation then? We start with this very notion that doing whatever I want is not the point of life. Whenever each of us had our I have the freedom to do anything moment, there came a time when we chose to make boundaries for ourselves. We made life rules at some point about going to sleep before it says a.m. on the clock or about how many days a week we can have pizza or about the number of drinks that is acceptable because we recognize that in freedom that we thought we aren't actually free. We were slaves to ourselves and our desires and over time it didn't feel free anymore. Freedom in Christ begins by recognizing our deep union with Jesus. And in this union, what we do with our bodies matters. Let us pray. Lord, we recognize this morning that these words from Paul about not being our own, but being yours, are really hard in the world that we live in, whose message, frankly, is to treat yourself to do whatever makes you feel good and makes you happy. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, we sing. And God, we recognize that we have tried to baptize our philosophy and our worldview onto, onto Jesus. And yet these words of Paul that say, we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to God and we belong to one another in the Christian community, are words that challenge us. And also, Lord, we know there are words that ring true for us and words that we long to live out. But Lord, just like the Corinthian people, that's going to require some transformation for us. And it requires us to recognize the messages that we are hearing all of the time being bombarded with that make that make claims that say that the whole end of life is to make sure that I personally have whatever I want. So Lord, help us. Help us to understand how to live out this reality of freedom, not just in the coming weeks as we talk about it, but in our lives. And Lord, help us to give ourselves over to you over and over again. In Christ's holy name we pray.